0: Arguably the biggest race on the Missouri ballot this year is the matchup between Democratic State Auditor Nicole Galloway and Governor Mike Parson. The GOP chief executive is trying to convince voters he's the right person to lead Missouri through the COVID-19 pandemic and a period of racial reckoning. Parson joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to break down the big issues and the increasingly watched campaign. Let's hit the music.
1: is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really
0: want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me from Jefferson City today is St. Louis Public Radio's Statehouse reporter...
2: Jacqueline Driscoll.
0: And joining us today the governor of the state of Missouri. Mike Parson. Thank you very much, Governor. We we very much appreciate your time today. Um, we're gonna be talking about your campaign for a full four year term. We're gonna talk about COVID, healthcare, crime, race relations and the campaign. But I wanna start off with a, with a pretty straightforward question. You've been involved with Missouri politics since 2005 when you were a member of the Missouri House. You've also been a member of the Missouri Senate. You've also been Polk County Sheriff, um, and then now you're governor. After ascending to the governorship after Eric Wrighton's resignation, why did you decide to run for a full four-year term? You know, I think one of, one of the main reasons is the policy we had
1: implemented when I became governor, and one of the great opportunities I had as governor, uh, I got to come in with no agenda uh, and was able to really focus on workforce development, infrastructure and really just do what was right for people of this state, regardless of the party affiliates, regardless of the campaigns. And those two things we knew uh, really moved the needle in the state. And we were able to do things like that. And we know now what real effect they had on the state and just uh, how it propelled us to, to really move up the ladder in the nation and what it really did for the state of Missouri and the opportunities we had, utilizing that plan from the beginning.
2: So looking at most polls, I'm not big into polls. Jason sometimes dabbles in them, but I'm not very good at them. But um, most of the polls in the state, if not all, have you winning. But the race is becoming more competitive. So if you were speaking to regular Missourians, why choose Governor Mike Parson rather than your opponent, State Auditor Nicole Galloway?
1: Well, first of all, let me just comment on polls. The polls have, we've always been six to eight points ahead. There's only been one poll that's even showed us getting closer. And matter of fact, most polls are showing us extending our lead in the last two weeks, which is always a good sign in this arena. But the reality is what we did in the beginning, we put Missourians first. When we talked about workforce development, what we did to build that workforce development up in the state of Missouri, when we funded education at the highest level that's ever been funded in our state's history, including early childhood development, that we're working on those issues, to really making a difference in the classrooms, to really get our kids ready for the workforce of tomorrow, to the jobs that are out there, to do what we did in infrastructure that had never been done before when we did 250 bridges across the state, a billion dollars worth of infrastructure, and having those two things in place is what brings businesses to our state, why people expand, why our kids stay here and work in Missouri. Those were doing the largest income tax cut in our state's history, to be able to, that, which tells you simply, you put more money in people's pockets, they spend money, and they drive the economy, not government. So I think just those policies went in place early on, and we know they're working through the community colleges, through the universities, through the private business, partnering with all of them to really build for the future of Missouri. And by doing all those things, you know, what is the results of that? 40,000 new jobs that we brought to the state of Missouri. We had business like Bungie move their global headquarters from New York to the St. Louis region. Briggs and Stratton shut their plant down in Kentucky, moved to Popular Bluff. CVS put their distribution center in Liberty Liberty, Missouri up there. All of those things, adding jobs, are successful and just capitalize on those two things. And... We know that that's what drives the economy. That's the competition we're against in other states, and I'm thankful. We were second in the nation for apprenticeship programs because of the actions we took and to be able to do things. Fast-track program, one start for a lot of our businesses, but just really focusing on the economy and making it move, and it works. So those are the things, when you know that happens, you just want to build on that, and that's what being governor the second term is all about, is to continue those programs that we know are successful But really, I don't need any more titles. I don't need, the money's not why I do what I do every day. I really want to make this state better for the people that live here. I want my kids, your kids, our grandkids to be able to stay in Missouri and have great opportunity. And uh, I focus on that every day when I go to work.
2: One of the topics that is driving this election is obviously COVID-19. Because it's such, it's a national issue. It's a state issue. You did contract the virus. You were asymptomatic. Your wife had mild symptoms. So my first question, and I think a lot of people in the state want to know, how are you doing? How is Teresa doing?
1: Yeah, we're doing fine. Uh, you know, Teresa's done fine. She had minor symptoms for probably about four or five days. And uh, thank goodness, and we were blessed. She's good. She's back to full steam now. I think the one thing when we went through it as the governor and first lady, we knew our risks were high. We, we just knew they were because i'm not a guy that's going to stay behind a desk and work all day or i'm not going to stay home you know as governor of state of missouri you got to be out there you got to do your job so you knew that risk factor was a little higher than most but i think the one thing me and Teresa both talked about if this happens how would we handle it how would we deal with it and if it was her if it was me how would we do it and we did exactly execute what we thought we did we were very open about it as soon as she had a fever she tested and i knew right away that i was going to be tested but i'd been tested four or five times before Uh, but when it happens to you it's the reality of it that anybody can get this virus and i think i think the most important thing for people to look at not that i didn't have any symptoms but i I think the important thing is this virus is here we still have to deal with it and it can go to anyone at any time and we have to be prepared for that and and i think for the most part most people in the state understand that
2: and Kind of going off of something you said, when it happens to you, it becomes a bit more real, right? I, I've been lucky enough that I'm young and I have not personally been affected. Yeah. But what did you learn about the virus that you otherwise may not have had you not contracted it?
1: Well, I, I, I mean, you can, on a personal scale, I guess, you know, the first thing you do is worry about your wife because she's sick. You know, uh, how, how serious is she going to be, you know, and where does it go for us? for me when i you know and then you worry about are you going to get symptoms tomorrow day two day three day four and you worry about those things like everybody else would be but on the other hand i think once you go through it you realize okay there's going to be lots of people are going to be like me there's going to be lots of people like the first lady so everybody needs to understand that that everybody doesn't sure have to live in fear you have to live in concern but you don't have to live in fear of it but you also have to understand i do as governor that this really does affect Uh, some vulnerable people in our state, and we got to be prepared for that, how we deal with it.
2: You have been pretty on message when you, you've been pretty consistent in saying that you want local entities to be in charge of mandates or restrictions. As we are seeing rural parts of the area having more cases or having a higher positivity rate, are you confident that those smaller governments are equipped to make those decisions in something as serious as a global pandemic?
1: Yeah, most well, certainly. I, I think when you talk about that, it's not the government making the decisions, the people making the decision. Because people, the city councils get to meet and they get to decide what these restrictions are. People get to go there and they get to do their testimony to testify, yes, I believe in this, no or don't. So their voices are heard. When you're sitting as a governor and do emergency clause and all of a sudden you just do a mandate for the whole state. And I've been pretty open about that the entire time, how, how diverse our state was. And it's gonna be affected at different times on that. And that's why I think it was important to leave it up to local, just like the school systems that we did. And here's why I say this, today we're talking about a mass. We've been talking about a mass for months and we, it's almost become a political issue. We all know that. But the really importance of it is, it's all three of the things the guidelines that we should all be talking about when we refer to that. The social distancing is about as critical as anything. Not being around somebody for 15 minutes, wearing a mask, keeping your hands clean. It's all three of those to make it work. And I think that's the message you need to get to people all the time. But, not, but, but when you talk statewide mandates, the vaccine's going to be here in 90 days. Do we really want the governor of the state of Missouri to say every man, woman, and child take a vaccine in the state of Missouri? Because that's what's coming up next. And there'll be some doctors, there'll be some scientists who will say that should be done. And I'm not gonna make that decision for a parent where they put a needle in their child's and, and inject them with a vaccine. You know, that's up to them to decide that and how they do that on the local level. So I think you gotta be really important when you use the powers of governor. And again, I'm gonna go back to what I've said all along. Uh, you have to do a balanced approach to this. And the people of this state are reacting just as this virus moves up the Midwest states, as we know it will and we know it has. We were ready for that, we knew that was gonna happen. Uh, In that you see that and compared to the other states, we're still much better off than a lot of the states around us. And if you see the Southern state that this has went through, those things are getting better. So it's a matter of this virus coming through there. But every day, nobody knows what's going to happen. Nobody knows the end game to this virus. We just got to keep fighting it every day.
2: Well, when we hear the, you know, the head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention testify in front of Congress and say, if everybody would just wear a mask, that might be better than an actual vaccine. We're still seeing a lot of people, especially in rural parts of the state. And I'm from, I'm from Illinois. I go home to see my parents who are farmers, and I know that people around there don't wear masks. How do we get that message to them that it is important, even though, as you say, it may have become a political issue? But science is still science.
1: Yeah. I, I think as leaders, you make that message out there. I don't think, again, just what you said, you referred to the mask. It's about social distancing. It's about being around somebody from 15 minutes, it's about big crowds. It's all our obligation to do that. We have did that for eight months. Sit up in front of press briefing every week, and I end with saying those three things. It's up to the local levels. It's up to all of us. And frankly, it's all it does as individuals to make sure, you know, doing these steps is not about ourselves. It's about the people around you. And that's the message we all need to be sending. I need to send, the media needs to send. This is about helping other people out, not necessarily about yourself, but are you willing to protect other people? And I think that's the message that you try to put out there all the time.
2: Before I let Jason hop in, I have one more question related to coronavirus, and it's because he and I are in similar situations where we are working from home, and we each have two children that we are doing online school with, and holy cow, I need to miss my kids for 10 minutes. I need to spend some time away from them. but. We've left, you know, the coronavirus in children. We know that it doesn't impact um, children as as badly. Right. Um, is it time for schools to resume in person learning? Um, and and how do we go about that? I, I know personally, I'm I'm ready to send them back when safe. <laughs> right.
1: Right. Well, most certainly, the kids should be in classroom settings. Ninety percent of the kids as of today, as we do this interview, are in the classrooms. Ninety percent of them are. Most of them went through summer school. Without incident whatsoever, hundreds upon hundreds of kids went back to school. The reality of it is, when these kids are staying at home, uh, even though it's an obligation for you as a single mother to be able to take care of those kids, you know you have the privilege to you take your job to do that. Some people still got to go to work, mm-hmm. and then you got to figure out how do you get those kids in daycare. So when people early on are saying shut the state down, shut the schools down, there's nine hundred and thirty thousand kids in the state of Missouri, K through twelve. 465,000 of those are on free and reduced lunches. 125,000 of them are special needs kids. Where do you go with those kids? It's not that simple to just say, we're gonna shut everything down because mom and dad's work. If you go to rural Missouri, they don't have daycare centers. There's no place to take your kid. And then you gotta figure out how you're gonna feed those kids. And how are you gonna get the health care services they need? Good, bad, or indifferent, those schools are a security blanket for a lot of kids. They need to be in there. And if you look at some of the other things that occur, whether it's the mental issue, middle health issues that they do, the special needs, but just trying to teach a kid virtually from home. Not everybody has all the ability to live a, a I wanna say, a, a good lifestyle where they can stay at home with their kids, they have everything they need. A lot of these kids come from poverty, low-income areas. They don't have the opportunities a lot of kids do. So if you're one of those privileged persons that can do it, it's totally different than it is when you're a single mom, Mm -hmm. uh, like you, when you live in a poverty area and your parents are not there, the home life's not very good, and then just trying to get virtual to a lot of people uh, that we're working on. So there's lots of chance. So you have to really think that stuff, through. I think on the school side of it, why it was so important for us in May and June, start trying to figure out how we're going to reopen the schools, how we're going to reopen the universities, and all of that planning with the school administrators, with DESE, with the university presidents, we were able to pull that off here in the state of Missouri. And all of those things are going again. And I think when you look at COVID, how you, how you look at the COVID-19 situation, in April, our fatality rate was 8% in this state. Today, I think it's like 1.6, still too many. But when people were projecting you are gonna have 22,000 people die in May, we've curved that to where we didn't even get close to those numbers in this state. And it's, again, it's a balanced approach dealing with the virus, getting kids back in school, dealing with the economy, and moving forward. But it's, uh, it's a challenge.
0: All of those are challenges, but I think everything we did was the right plan at the right time. Uh, before we move on to healthcare, I do want to touch on the vaccine question. Um, your, your administration did put out a plan to roll that out. I'd like you to touch on that more. And I'd like you to elaborate on the the fact that it won't be that the state's not going to require or mandate people to take it. Like, I understand, like, I, I want you to kind of to elaborate on that point, because people may be like, why shouldn't this be mandated if it if it leads to a normal life, basically?
1: Yeah, i will be glad to. But I want to say this. I enjoy the kids in the background. That's one thing I miss is my kids, my grandkids at home. So you can let them kids go. I like it in the background, these interviews.
0: Yeah, just for our listeners to understand what Governor Parson is talking about while he was answering the question. And right after Jacqueline asked the question about kids, my my son, Brandon Todd Rosenbaum, ran in the background. He's, by the way, a fifth generation Missourian. This is Missouri Day that we're that we are taping this. But uh, continue, Governor, on the question of vaccines and, and requirements?
1: No problem. Well, on the vaccine, you know, we were of the first states in the United States to get our plan in. Uh, we were very proud of that. Started working on that months ago to be able to how we were going to implement that. And that will be a model for other states in the United States. Again, I think by just taking the action we was. The reality of the vaccine is, the highlights of it is those frontline people, the nursing home, your hospital employees, your doctors, your nurses, the people on the front lines, I want to say will be the ones utilizing the vaccine early on. It'll be a very limited supply uh, that'll come to the state of Missouri. So I'm not for sure, I'm gonna guess and and just strictly guess probably in December sometime that might be available, might not, Uh, but what I will say is to the general public, it's probably not going to be available to probably spring sometime or summer sometime. I think the general public, and I think the reality of it is, uh, we know in Missouri, whether it's a flu shot, whether it's this vaccine, uh, there's going to be a lot of a lot of majority of people is not going to take that right off the bat. So, uh, what we're seeing in polling and what we're seeing in data is saying about 50% of the people uh, will take the vaccine and 50% won't. So, uh, that'll be something we'll have to do with messaging, just like the flu shot. Uh, but again, Uh, It would be very difficult, I think, for anybody to force a vaccine on anybody, but I do think it's important. I think it's a turning point when that vaccine comes out.
2: I wanted to touch on um, Medicaid expansion. Mm -hmm. Um, That did get approved by voters. Prior to that, you had come out and said that it's going to be a a tax increase for Missourians, but you have um, made a point to say that since voters approved it, you're going to make sure that it gets implemented. If elected, how are you going to make sure that um, the Missouri legislature keeps that intact um, and it's in place the way voters had approved it? Yeah,
1: well, first of all, I never said it'd be a tax increase to, to the people. I said, you're gonna to have to figure out how to pay for it. And But we'll fully support Medicaid. People voted for that. I've said that from day one, once that vote come in, that we would support that. We're gonna to have to pay for it out of general revenue. And uh, you know, we're trying to do some uh, physical note on that now uh, at the Capitol. But look, even the, one, even the one that my opponent did, it was somewhere between $200 million and zero. So you got to plan for that $200 million. I just know from Medicaid being in the governor's position, uh, Medicaid has never went down in our state. Every year it continues to grow. So we know that that possibility is there, and we just got to prepare for it. And you're going to have to find the money to do it. The Constitution says we do it. I mean, the people voted for that, but i still got to balance the budget so whatever it costs, we're going to have to put the bill on it.
2: We've heard from uh, some in the state legislature that they may consider imposing work requirements. Would that be something that you see as a way to um, offset some of those costs?
1: I haven't talked to any of the legislators about that. I'm not sure what that plan is. I do think you need to remember this is all about able-bodied adults. This is not about children. This is not about kids whatsoever. This is about Able-bodied adults. So I'm not sure what we'll do, but the people have said this is they want to implement this program, so we're going to implement it, and uh, you're going to have to figure out ways to pay for it. So you're just going to have to take uh, either new sources, if there is new sources out there to be had, or you're going to take the existing ones and and do that, and uh, just see how we can do it. But you know, like I said, it's. I've never denied I wouldn't implement it. I didn't agree with it because number one, our state percentage of budget is number one in the state what we pay on medicaid in missouri and i think that's important for missourians to know that but we are number one in the nation for what percentage of the budget we spend on medicaid we spend about out of a 30 billion dollar budget we spend about 12 billion as we stand today And, and we'll expand that
0: we'll be right back after this quick break with governor mike parson And we're back on Politically Speaking with Governor Mike Parson. He's on the ballot on November 3rd against Democrat Nicole Galloway. I want to move up to public safety. Uh, There was recently a special session on on violent crime. As I'm sure you know, a couple of things did get across the finish line dealing with witness protection. uh, And a number of things didn't. So there's a lot left to be done from a legislative standpoint. Um, and, and there's been some backlash to it. There were a lot of people that didn't like your advocacy of allowing the attorney general to intervene in murder cases in St. Louis. They saw that as a, 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 an attack on circuit attorney Kim Gardner. And there were some other things that also proved controversial. How do you think that ended up squaring away? And since a lot of those things in that special session are undone, what would you want to do in a second term? to get a handle on what everybody agrees is a real problem in in our cities with violent crime
1: well well first of all i I think one of the things the priorities we had in special session we got done the witness protection plan was the top priority of the st louis kansas city columbia springfield all the mayors the african-american community in st louis that witness plan was the one thing that we thought would do us the most good to fight violent crime. So we got that, uh, was a one piece, the residency for St. Louis where the homicide rate is the highest in the state. Uh, I think that was a big issue for them. They've been trying to do that for four or five years. We were able to get that done. That'll put more boots on the ground, more police officers. And for me as a law enforcement officer, I think you got to get back to community policing. You got to get officers out of the cars, back in the communities, building relationships. And so there's a lot more work to be done on that. Uh, again, I think those are some of the things, you go back to community policing, you get more people on the ground. I think by us putting the first step of the million dollars that we put into the Urban League, trying to make sure we de-escalate violent crime in St. Louis. And I think what we've been doing, I think when you partner with the federal government like we did, and again, take politics to the side. Uh, you know, when we did uh, triple beam in Kansas City, the feds, the state, and the local levels. When you did operations legends, you really put some dent in major criminals in the state of Missouri. But I think it's important that you know. For me, my job is to assist those cities to whatever I can do, whether that's through the attorney general's office, through that more law enforcement was working interstate, freeing up law enforcement officers. And I think something that come out of it, you don't always have to do legislative, but I think putting the first African American police academy on Lincoln University in the United States. Uh, The first African-American college to have a police academy is one heck of a good deal for the state of Missouri. It's going to help with the diversity. We're going to try to partner with Harris Stowe uh, to be able to utilize that, uh, to help with that, uh, those officers on the ground and get more diversity in these police forces. And I think the post commission has been out several months now trying to put reforms and how we're going to do tactics for police officers in the state of Missouri. So a lot of work to still be done, but I definitely think we're moving in the right direction. And I think actually since all of this has taken place, I want to say special session with the Federals coming in. uh, I'm not sure what the homicide rate is today, but I do believe that homicide rate is going down in in those urban areas. So that's good news for all of us, regardless which party affiliates are.
0: There there were a number of particularly Democratic legislators who feel that without dealing with measures that hold bad police officers accountable— Uh, which is commonly known as police reform. But when I talk about that, I mean, you know, potentially bringing in a a prosecutor when a police officer kills somebody or uh, having sensitivity training mandated or trying to figure out ways to diversify police departments to make sure that they're not largely white. Without doing those measures, any any other violent crime-related things aren't going to work because you're not going to have the trust of people in those communities. I'm sure you've heard that argument a lot. I, w- I would like you to address that point.
1: Yeah, well, I think, number one, I think that's one of the things. I probably spent more time, I want to say, in the African, um, African-American community than probably any other governor has in a two-year period of time, all the way from working with Better Family Life, with Grill for Glory, with meeting with the clergy, uh, being down there in some of their areas where their where centers are, where, where their churches are, and trying to put a package together. And here, here's the one thing I, I know we've been working on and we'll continue to do that. The one thing you got to do is you got to figure out how you keep people safe in those communities just to get down the street. When a 65-year-old woman comes up to you and says, Look, I'm scared to walk down the street because I'm going to get misidentified. We have to change the way we do business. If you're going to get those kids out of that environment, it's going to come through an education and a possibility of a job. And you've got to put your resources in there. And I know there's a lot of nonprofits out there that say they do a lot of great things. But the one thing I've learned, a lot of that product is not getting to the streets to those people to help them. And when you see, I'll just give the grill for glory. I was up there on that day. You know, you got an 80-year-old man comes up there, and he gets five hot dogs. And you, and you talk to him, and you sit down with him, and you says, Okay, how come you got five hot dogs? And he talks about, I'm going to eat two. I'm going to take two home for dinner. I'm going to take one home Sunday on lunch. We're better than that in this state. And we got to find ways to get that to the street. Uh, When you look at a food bank on Martin Luther King Boulevard, Del Mar up there, you pick them. You know, there's cases of lima beans or or very limited supply. But go to some of the other cities and you go into warehouses stacked full of food. Those are the kind of things that you really got to do. And I think going back when we knew when the African-American community was affected by COVID-19, we started moving all our mobile testing sites up there. Uh, you, but you, you'll never understand that if you don't spend time on the streets, go, don't go down there for a photo op, but go down there to see what it's really like for everyday people to live, and I think that's one of the things that, maybe because of the beginning where I started, a very humble beginning, I get it, what it's not like to have much, uh, and I understand what those people are going through, and, and we just do better in that state, and I think as governor, you're going to find out, Jason, Jackie, both of you, for decades, we've made promises, we've said we're going to do this, we said we're going to do that, and all of us know that, and nothing's changed under the policy. So we just, we just got to do better than that, and I think you'll see some changes in that area.
2: You have a former law enforcement, well, you have a background in law enforcement, excuse me, and a lot of the conversation right now in the country is what Jason was talking about, police reform, mm-hmm. reforms for police right. officers, what can we do, um, systemic bias training, or things, things of that nature. With your law enforcement background, I realize that you are very supportive of, of police officers, sure. but do you recognize that you know, there needs to be more training, they need to have more resources available to them in order to connect better with you know, communities of color in particular?
1: Yeah. Most certainly. Uh, let me just go back. Just let, me, let me start off by just saying serving in the Army. Let me give you a perfect example of this. If you're in a foxhole, it doesn't matter what the person in there is which what the color of their skin is. Because you're there to help each other, and you really got to protect each other. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the gender is. Your job is to help each other to finish a mission, to get it accomplished. When you're sheriff, when you're in law enforcement, you should be there to help people every day. You are a public servant, period. Take away your titles and everything else, what the pretty uniform looks like or whatever, but you're a public servant. When I was sheriff, my guys got held to an under unreal standard if they didn't pay the rent they didn't get to work for me I mean when you put that badge on and you take that oath on you should be held to a higher standard period that's the way I view the world if you're out there violating police policy if you're taking the law upon yourself on the people you should be taken off you should be taken out of that arena and you shouldn't be allowed to work in it and you should have the training to make sure you understand that if you violate the law of all people Whether it's right or indifferent, when you're a law enforcement officer, you're going to be held to a higher standard. And that's just the way I view the world. So when people make those mistakes, uh, they got to be accountable. Uh, You know, if you kill somebody because of what action you took or you didn't do whatever thing you could to protect somebody, then you ought to be held accountable. And uh, I I think you're going to see those policies change. And I think the one thing I do have is that experience to know really what makes a difference. Uh, You know, and I know the difference between internal investigations and what the real world is out there. And I'll call it the way it is. If you're a bad cop, you're a bad cop. Get the heck out of the department.
2: I'm curious, have you ever witnessed systemic racism in, in, in the field?
1: Oh, I think probably all of us have been exposed to that sometime in our lives where we've seen somebody do something or say something that, uh, you know, most people I would say has been to that. But I think it goes back to, you know, I, first of all, I'm a Christian believer so i I believe everybody's life matters all the way from the unborn all the way to what color your skin is and everybody should be treated equal so i'm going to go back to how i grew up in a very humble beginning and i would say in most people's eyes if they knew how i grew up would say oh he was poor but we didn't know that that's just the way everybody else lived but the one thing i did know is i value everyone and it doesn't matter to me what 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 the color somebody's skin is all life to me is important, uh, and, and I spent a career making sure that everybody I treated the same. And for the people that are racist, for the people who do that, there's no place for that in our country. We, we don't need to be divided. We need to be sitting down with one another and moving the state forward here in Missouri. And, and a lot of that is just a matter of reaching out, trying to figure out how we change things. There's nothing wrong with doing police reform, changing policy, changing the use of force, you know. There's nothing wrong with changing techniques. We should be open to that all the time. So uh, that's kind of how I view the world for the law enforcement it. But at the end of the day, I also think it's important to note that these men and women are out there every day, the vast, vast, large hard majority of time get it right. Uh, and I think it's unfortunate that society has blown this up so bad uh, where we've seen the demonstration, the destruction, the looting, the criminal activity in the name of a peaceful protest and where people are dying from that, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I've been to too many funerals since I've been governor uh, of law enforcement officers. I, I meet people like Mrs. Dorn, uh, the Baldwin family, uh, and I, I think of Mrs. Dorn and her husband. I think, from oh my gosh, you've spent an entire lifetime in law enforcement. You've risked everything every day, and in the middle of a protest, I guess you want to say, had to turn bad for a lot of people, you end up losing your life. I mean, it's just, it's unfortunate, it's sad, but there's people like that every day out there, again, that our jobs to protect those people and we all should learn from that. And I think we did. I think a lot of people changed the way they did after that incident. So it's unfortunate bad things happen.
0: I absolutely agree with you. Like Violence and, and destruction is unacceptable and it was horrible that Officer Doran died and those police officers were shot. I think that should be roundly condemned. Um, and I'm going ask you a similar question that I asked Auditor Galway, though. I think Missouri has a lot of great qualities. It's a beautiful state, it has wonderful people, but it also has a pretty sorry legacy toward how uh, black people have been treated in this state. Everything from the fact that there was slavery in this state to the Dred Scott decision to the fact that they're, to this day, are educational and economic disparities between white and black people and i want you to explain and you kind of touched on this earlier how are you as governor going to dismantle the systemic racism within those institutions in this next four years i know it's going to take more than four years but how are you going to start breaking down those barriers it's going to take about 18
1: years is what it's going to take and the first thing you got to do is find those kids out there and you got to get them in a school system whatever that takes you got to take education to them you got to be in those neighborhoods. You've got to understand what it's like. You need people like Art McCoy, Dr. McCoy up there in Jennings that's willing to go help those kids in those tough neighborhoods. But what we've did for a long time, we've created these programs. We've actually proved, keep these people locked up in these neighborhoods where they can't get out. Most of us think we can go to a grocery store that's five blocks away. They can't. There's no health care systems there. There's no education system there uh, to speak of. What we got to do is what I started in the first place. We got to do something with early childhood development. And you got to get that kid an education, you got to get him in a classroom, and then you got to give him some sort of job training. And in order to do that, that's about an 18 year start. But I know this if you keep doing what we've been doing from decade to decade, what you just said, Jason, you're going to deal with another decade from now if you don't change it. I think we've already started that process. When I was talking about fully funding education, it's not about just it's, it's not about fully funding it. It's about getting the resources to where they need to go, the people that need to get, to get service. Early childhood development is a key to that, and we're doing that. Uh, again, nobody else has ever done it uh, to the level we're doing it because I get it and I understand uh, what those areas do. But you can't keep these... These people that we're talking about, that you're talking about these low-income, these poverty-stricken areas, you can't keep them in the same area and expect anything different. You've got to give them opportunity. You've got to put stores there. You've got to put health care centers there. And if it takes using the churches for a safe zone to get people to educate kids and teach them about training, you've got to do that. And all of it's going to take all of us at a community effort. But you can't just say, I'm going to ship a few dollars down there and make everybody happy and things are going to get better because they're not. And you're not going to change many 65, 70-year-old people that grew up in that
0: environment. The only shot you got is the kids, Jason. That's it. Polls indicate that President Trump is losing some popularity that he had in 2016, and you've aligned yourself pretty closely with the president. If he doesn't do as well in the state, are you, are you concerned that that may cause you to lose as well?
1: I, I don't believe that. I, I believe the president do very well here in the state of Missouri. Matter of fact, we're out polling him in most polls. Uh, that you've seen, and he'll do better than what he's polling, uh, I don't think he, there's no doubt he's going to win Missouri uh, on that. I think the big question is, is how much is the amount that, that he wins by. But I think, it is, uh, I think that helps us. And I think, again, I think just the approach I've taken since I've been governor about a balanced approach. I mean, I've been to the Kansas City, St. Louis, all over the state, really trying to build a gap between businesses and people around this state. And I think that's what people want in a governor. I, I don't think the diverse side of it. I don't think people being divided as we see in the country is what people want. And uh, I I I I'll tell you the example just finishing up when, when I think you should be working with Democrats. And I think I don't think you're going to have any Democrat mayors or anybody that I know of are going to say that Mike Parson's not willing to work with you on that. I don't think anybody to say that. Uh, but what I will stand up for, I will stand up for when people do. Matter of fact, like yesterday, when Cori Bush comes out with this statement she made on social media that's just totally unacceptable, and then you have Galloway, who's a candidate that, that endorses that kind of behavior, but when you talk about defunding the, the Pentagon, uh, when you look at Boeing that sits in her district, when you look at NGA that was perfectly designed for that, those things are big issues for the state of Missouri. You've got to be careful what you say as an elected official, and you need to understand, you know, what those meanings are when you look at Fort Leonard Wood, at Whiteman, at a $30 billion enterprise in our state. So uh, I, I just think, uh, I think experience is going to show in this election. Uh, I think the things I've done in my career will speak for itself. And I think my whole goal is to move Missouri forward.
0: Well, thank you very much, Governor, for your time. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Jacqueline, how can people follow you on Twitter?
2: Driscoll, NPR.
0: And, Governor, how can people follow you on Twitter or find out more about your campaign?
1: Uh, just just go to MikeParson.com. We'll get you there about anything. Our names will show up uh, on that. Just appreciate you guys. Uh, appreciate being on the show, Jason. Thank you very much.